So, after Easter, I had planned to move back into our study of Mark's gospel. However, over the last few years, there's kind of been this haunting that happens in my soul leading up to and then post every Easter. And it comes out of this reflection that I think that there's a real systemic problem in a lot of churches, at least in the West. And that problem is this. Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, and its implications for our lives essentially are emphasized one day of the year and then quickly forgotten. Most of us in this room don't even realize like Easter is still happening. Easter is a 50-day season. But we don't think that because the chocolate bunnies have already gone on sale and we're like, oh, it's over. It's time to move on, <laughs> move to the next thing. And, and yet Easter is this massive season in the church calendar. In his book, Surprised by Hope, former Anglican bishop, uh, now New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, he chastises his own tradition, Anglicanism, which is very liturgical and has this 40-day season of Lent preceding Easter. And he, and he writes these words in the book. He says, I regard it as absurd and unjustifiable that we should spend 40 days keeping Lent, pondering what it means, preaching about self-denial, being at least a little gloomy, and then bringing it all to a peak with Holy Week, which in turn climaxes in Maudie Thursday and Good Friday. And then after kind of an odd Holy Saturday, we have a single day of celebration. What's going on? Why is Easter, functionally speaking, just kind of a blip on our calendars? I think that one of the reasons, there's probably quite a few, but I think one of them is that we simply haven't been taught to appreciate the power and the glory of Easter. We haven't, the dots haven't been connected to us, for us, on how the resurrection of Jesus makes a tangible difference to our world, our lives, the lives of the people that we love. And so our momentary acknowledgement of Easter, I think, reveals a pretty profound theological void. And I say that because as I've discovered more and more about the resurrection, as I've steeped in it, as I've turned it over, and like a jewel, you kind of study it from different angles, its beauty and its power has just begun to affect me in ways that I honestly wouldn't, I've never experienced before, and I couldn't have anticipated. And out of that experience, I'm realizing it, it, it does feel absurd. Like I said last week, once you stare the resurrection in the face, the truth of the resurrection, it seems absurd to just attempt to move back to life as usual. The resurrection is the hinge point of history, and it opens up an entirely novel way of engaging the world. And so what I'm going to do over these 50 days of Easter is I'm going to do an Easter series called um, Living in Light of the Resurrection. Renew, Living in Light of the Resurrection. And I really have two aims for it. I want to broaden and deepen our understanding theologically of what is happening in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And then B, I want to make sure that we're coming to some very practical conclusions of if the resurrection is true and if it's real, which it is, how does that shape and reshape our life? How does that bring new hope for renewal and restoration and redemption on the ground level of our lives? I'll talk about some of the topics I'll be looking at in a second. But before we get into the scripture reading this morning, it's the first Sunday of the month. I like to share my heart, soul, mind, and strength growth plan with you guys as a way to hopefully spur you on to be setting goals in each of the areas of your life uh, that you um, are called to, I believe, by Jesus to cultivate. Jesus said, love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And so that you can remember that in an easy way, I just use those as kind of a quadrant to talk about developing godly relationships, cultivating a rich interior life of prayer, mind, is, is learning more about God through scripture and through Bible study and through good quality uh, Christian literature, um, conversations, podcasts, and then strength serving. And so what I do every month is I say, God, where, where is, what's a way that I could stretch myself in each of those areas? Because I want to learn to love God holistically, not just in the ways that come easily to me. So don't, I'm sharing this with you, not so that you can say, oh, that's interesting, okay, but so that maybe you go home and say, okay, for April, what's one thing that I could do in each of those areas to really challenge myself to grow as a disciple? I'm going to be focusing on encouraging people this month. I, th I think that's just a relational habit that is in short supply in our world, and I really want to strengthen that muscle. Soul spring cleaning, what I mean by that is I'm coming up to my one-year anniversary at the end of this month of being here, and I want to look at the last year and say, what have been habits and postures of the heart that have been very, very helpful for me? And how do I further grow in those and solidify those? And what have been postures and habits and disciplines that have maybe uh, held me back from how I feel like God is helping me to move forward? So just kind of at a bird's eye view, trying to say, what are some things, what's the clutter? How do, how do I declutter some of the things in my own heart and life, bring things before God and say, this is just kind of dead weight, and I need to kind of offload this moving forward. Mind, I can continue on my scripture reading plan and also have two books that I'm uh, looking to complete this month. And then strength, I'm going to take part in both sanctuary painting days. Those are things, to be honest with you, I would much rather delegate those out to other people. Strength isn't a huge thing of mine. Uh, I, I love the idea of serving and giving, but often when it comes down to it, those are the things those are the opportunities that tend to be, for me, the things that I push off till next month and the next month and next week. And so it's, that, that's one of my weakest areas in terms of loving God and loving my neighbor. And so that's something that I really wanted to commit to. So I'm going to be spending two full Saturdays here painting. I'll be whining and complaining after two hours because my hands will be sore because I don't really do anything other than flip loose leaf thin pages of the Bible. But take some Advil. We'll be fine. We'll power through. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is an entire chapter devoted to the resurrection. I'm not going to be reading through the whole chapter. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. They had a lot of struggles within their church trying to figure out what does it mean to live in light of the resurrection. And Paul has some really, really powerful, interesting words here. So I want to read those and then share a little bit about my journey in coming to understand why the resurrection is so significant. So 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For I received, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared also to me as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effort. Now, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was at work with me. 
Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. I became a Christian in 1992, which is going to make some of you feel really old. It's going to make some of you look at me and say, oh, dude, you're super old. 1992 was one of the better years to become a Christian because the Christian evangelical subculture was thriving. I was introduced first to Christ through a Salvationist in the Salvation Army, then settled into my grandmother's Anglican church a few months later. And I got caught up in the whole evangelical subculture. I had the Michael W. Smith CDs and Newsboys and Stephen Curtis Chapman and Sandy Patty. I was that Christian guy, that kid in the high school who wore his like, Christian t-shirt that was attempting to be like a witness and boastful, but it was basically just arrogant and rude <laughs> things on a t-shirt. And it came across as very holier than thou probably to a lot of uh, my peers. And in the first five years of my Christian life, one of the themes that I remember, especially in a lot of the radio teachings that I listened to, the theme of the gospel kept being just thrown at me. Gospel, that word was emphasized again and again and again. And for the uninitiated, the gospel doesn't really mean anything strange. It's the New Testament word in Greek that's translated, the New Testament Greek word is evangelion, It's translated as gospel, but the direct translation just means good news. It's a good news proclamation. And so when Christians talk about the gospel or reference the gospel, they're essentially just trying to say this is the bottom line point of Christianity. This is the heart. This is the center of everything is the gospel. And while the importance of the gospel was emphasized again and again and again, what came with that was this warning to be careful that you don't fall prey to a watered-down gospel. Be very careful not to fall prey to a watered-down gospel. And so you had these preachers that I would listen to and sometimes churches that I would be a part of that would boast about how their ministry was, was the full gospel. It was the real gospel. We don't water down the gospel like these Christians do. And some churches today, although I think it's a little bit less, use those labels. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with talking about a full gospel. I'm okay with warning about a watered-down gospel. My caveat is this. We, I want to make sure we really understand what a full gospel is and the implications of that full gospel. Because my experience, and this is just true for me, my experience has been some of those teachers and, and preachers and churches that spoke the strongest about having a full gospel. We don't water down the gospel upon closer inspection, actually had a pretty watered-down gospel. And this is what I mean by that. There's a Scottish academic named Simon Gathercole. He came up with an idea. Well, he tried to synthesize what does the gospel mean in its most simple form. And he said the gospel holds together three truths. Whenever you talk about the gospel, embedded in any conversation of the gospel is three truths. One is the incarnation, Jesus The second person of the Trinity became a human being and lived life among us bodily. The second truth is the atonement. He self-sacrificially died to atone for the sins of the world. And the third is resurrection and ascension. He has overcome death. He's been resurrected and installed as king and lord over heaven and earth. Now, Timothy Keller, who's a teacher that I really appreciate, he took Gather Cole's kind of three doctrinal things, and he just made it easy to remember. He said the gospel is, is manger cross crown. 
That is the heart of Christianity. God became a man, God died for its sins, and God was raised to new life. And Jesus has been installed as king and Lord over all. Now, the full gospel is that. is an equal and, and equal and significant weight put on all of those dimensions. But here's the thing. When I look back on the gospel that I was taught in my formative years as a Christian, it was misshapen. It didn't have equal emphasis. It looked a little bit more like this. The manger was there for sure. God becoming a, a man and his life and his teachings definitely is something important. You should read it. You should read the gospels. You should study the life and teachings of Jesus. But the cross, like this is the this is kind of the point. And it was almost treated like the cross was the gospel. This, this is the dimension. Christ atoned for sin. Christ's victory over the penalty of sin. That sinners could have sins removed. And yes, crowned Jesus, rose again from the dead. But that was kind of left more or less to... But that just shows Jesus was who he was. It shows that we can have our sins forgiven. We can go to heaven when we die. That's great. And that's kind of all that the resurrection and resurrection theology was emphasized, at least for me. The point that came through, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, was that the good news of Christianity is Jesus came to die for us, to atone for sin, so that we could have eternal life with him. And eternal life was understood as what happens after you die. You you get to be in heaven forever. That part of the gospel is certainly true. But what happens when our gospel is misshapen like this? What happens when, we, when, we, when some parts of the gospel are robust and big and we fleshed out the implications of the cross, but the resurrection and the ascension and the outpouring at Pentecost that all are tied into this idea of crown, those things kind of get lip service or they're just a quick entry point into going back to the importance of the cross. Well, for me, a misshapen gospel led to a misshapen expression of Christianity for me. This might, that, that, that you know, we all have an imperfect understanding of the gospel. I'm not trying to say any of our understanding is perfect. But for me, this overemphasis of the cross and the detriment and, and not emphasizing the resurrection enough, it led to four pretty tangible problems in the way that not, I not, not only viewed my faith, but attempted to live it out, or in some cases, not attempted to live it out. When you have a gospel with a very small crown, for me at least, or a crownless gospel, it led to a very, very narrow view of salvation for me. Salvation was freedom from the penalty of sin. God wants to save you from the penalty of sin, which is ultimately his judgment, which is ultimately his removal of you from his presence forever. In hell, not in heaven, so the penalty of sin put right in the forefront. And so the point that, that I was led into and, and kind of taught, the point is to get people saved, to help them experience salvation. But that was understood in a very narrow way. It was to get them to confess their sins so they could have their uh, sins atoned for and they could uh, find freedom from the penalty of sin. Again, that's part of the gospel. That's a good thing. But that's kind of where it, it stayed for me. And I knew this was... A problem because I had a friend who became a Christian about four years after I became a Christian and he gave his life over to Christ and he was all excited and he was kind of like now what do I do and I was like well the most important thing's taken care of 
So, like, you, just, you read your Bibles, you pray, you go to church. But I couldn't really offer him a compelling vision for life here and now because my gospel was misshapen and he had said the most important thing, right? Which was he confessed Jesus, he'd become a Christian. And so now it was kind of like, well, just try not to sin and wait for Jesus to come back. Number two, it led me to focus on life after death. Against, again, the penalty of sin was always about you know, living in light of eternity and trying to make sure that we're secure in our hope for heaven after death. And when your gospel has a very small crown but a huge cross, you, you understand how Christianity transforms the next life. You get paradise with God, not hell. That's great. That's good news. But you don't always understand how Christianity is supposed to transform this life. That kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. Number three, it led me to misunderstand a lot of the Bible and its purpose. Early acronyms like, you know what the Bible stands for? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Boom, drop the mic, get it? Terrible. Just terrible, right? But I understand how people would look at the Bible as just basic instructions before leaving earth if your crown is very small, if your resurrection theology is very small, the point is to get on board with God's great evacuation plan, that God is saving people out of this world. This place is, a, is, is going to hell in a handbasket. It's going to burn up anyways, right? Kind of like pop, pop theology. Be a kind of, everyone's kind of heard this stuff, so they kind of assume it's true. Everything's going to be burned up and gone anyway, so just put all your eggs in the heaven basket and, uh, yeah, and read the Bible. It's some good stuff in here. But... Um, I missed out on so much of the depth and glory and goodness of the Bible because of a, a weak resurrection theology. Even Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of heaven, I interpreted those as meaning things you need to do to get into heaven. So it, just, it actually led me to misread the Bible. And when Jesus is actually teaching about how to bring the goodness and the glory and the power of heaven into life here and now, if your gospel's misshapen, you can misinterpret so much that is supposed to be about hope for renewal here and now and think, oh, that's about hope for renewal then and later. Some famous North American dispensationalist read the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' longest extended teaching on what it means to live as kingdom people here and now. And you know what their interpretation of it was? Because, of, because their gospel was cross-centric and it didn't have a strong resurrection theology. They said... Oh, the Sermon on the Mount is what life's going to be like in heaven. Jesus, this isn't for now at all. Jesus doesn't expect you to turn the other cheek or love for enemies. That, this is a future vision thing. This is what's going to happen when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. Really, really strange misinterpretations. And I look back now and I'm like, wow, I really... The Bible seems very flat to me and very one-dimensional. And lastly, and this is maybe the most significant this misshapen gospel turned Jesus into a means to an end. Jesus was my punch ticket into heaven. He was the thing, he was the way, he was the path, he was the door, he was the gate and the gatekeeper through which I can get what I want, which is eternal security for myself. And once I get that, of course, thank you Jesus, that's awesome, but 
I mean, you certainly can and should still live for Jesus, but it felt like I didn't really understand exactly why so much. Because Jesus has already done like his work. Like the most important things have already been taken care of. So now if I want to serve Jesus in other ways, I totally can if I'm like a Jesus king or Jesus freak. But I don't have to because I'm saved. And so it actually diminished Jesus' lordship in my life by having this misshapen gospel. You sort, of move, you sort of lose motivation to take in Jesus' teachings, to consider his life. If he's essentially a bridge that just connects you to God, once you're connected with God, do you really need him anymore? Does your theology push you into, I need to be at this person's feet, learning with and from them every single day of my life? My theology didn't because it was small in the resurrection. And I operated within that gospel for a long, 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 long time. But my life started to change when people started talking around me more about the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection and the ascension. And I heard words like new creation and the renewal of all things in Colossians and Ephesians. And I started stumbling and finding these themes hidden in plain sight in the scripture. I had kind of glanced over them. They weren't that important scriptures because they weren't cross-centric. So you can kind of, they're second grade scriptures. Now I'm finding these are super important. These are amazing. And as all this began to take shape, I realized what was happening in my life. I was finding more motivation to follow Jesus. I was more excited. I was more interested in, in, in so many dimensions of my faith. And it was because the crown part of my gospel was growing. My understanding of the resurrection was enlarging. It wasn't just becoming a one-day-a-year thing. It was becoming, it was kind of seeping into my consciousness. And God was using it to reframe my entire Christian life. And after a number of years of, of, of moving into this new understanding, this is what it's helped me with. Number one, it's led to a richer view of salvation. Salvation is about God's rescue. Not just the rescue of individuals from the judgment of hell. That is part of the gospel. But the gospel is even better than that. It's about the fact that God wants to rescue and redeem and take back that which has been lost. Not just, you know, off in eternity, but here and now. The word salvation, its root in Hebrew means to be taken from a place of confinement into a spacious place. And that's what God wants to do in our lives here and now. In the resurrection, Jesus has been installed as King and Lord over all things in heaven and on earth. The entire cosmos. And he wants to invite those who want to find freedom from not just the penalty of sin to join him, but those who want freedom from the power of sin. There's a difference. The penalty of sin is the consequences that come from sinning. The power of sin is finding freedom from having your life dominated by patterns of death and destruction. In Romans 6 verses 1 to 15, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome who kind of had this idea that like, well, isn't the gospel that Jesus died and we're forgiven of our sins? So doesn't that mean we can just like keep on sinning? Isn't that kind of the good news of Christianity? No matter what you do, you can have your sins forgiven so we can just keep living however way we want. And Paul, in a sense, says, you've got the cross, absolutely. You're, the penalty of your sin is dealt with. But the resurrection points to the fact that Jesus is now preparing and empowering you for an entirely new kind of life. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. 
We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, a renewed life here and now. God has an entirely new trajectory, not just I'll just keep doing living inside the same self-centered patterns that I have been before, but good news, I just will never have to face the penalty for that. No, you've been rescued from the penalty of sin, and now God is rescuing you from the power of sin at work in you. Sin is not to reign in your bodies. The righteousness and holiness of God is. Number two, it led me to an increased emphasis on the life before death, not being so much obsessed with the life after death. When your resurrection theology is strong, you're like, yep, I'm going to spend eternity with God. No problem. It's going to be awesome. New heavens and new earth. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Fantastic. Where it relocates your focus is in the here and now. See, a generation ago, maybe, uh, yeah, probably a generation ago, the, the big kind of question in the subculture was, is there life after death? Ooh, what happens when you die? I think, although it's, sometimes it's hard for people to articulate, I think today the average person is actually asking, is there life before death? Like, is there actually a life and a hope that I can take hold of that is really life? How do I access that life? How do I take hold of it? Are there things that I can do to help facilitate that? And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. And understanding the resurrection helped me to understand oh, this is the fullness of life that Jesus is pointing to. Not just freedom from the penalty of sin, but the ability to walk inside of an entirely new kind of power with a new focus. Number three, it helped me to radically reread my Bible. My Bible just became multidimensional. I began seeing themes and ideas in it. I realized the Bible isn't basic instructions at all. It's basic instructions and master's level studies and PhD level studies and all kinds of genres and art forms that are inspired by God why? Like, if the point is just to get people saved, why would... This is, a, this is a lot of wasted ink and space if it's just about getting people to acknowledge their sin and then we're kind of done. And now we're just kind of waiting for God to suck us up into the sky. But if this is a manual of new creation, what it means to move into every sphere of life, every dimension, every relationship, all the different expressions of brokenness in this world and to bring Christ's love and healing and redemption to it, you can imagine why it'd be pretty thorough. And the whole New Testament, I realized, I remember at the time I had the, that realization, I'm like, the entire New Testament is first, the four accounts of Jesus' life, and the rest of the New Testament is trying to figure out what does it mean to live in light of not just the fact that God came as a man, that's part of it, not just the fact that uh, God died on our behalf, that's part of it, but also that Christ has been raised and now Jesus is king. What does it mean to live with that realization? And now that after Pentecost, God's spirit has been poured out and given freely to any believer, how now should we live, Peter says. It's, it's a, it just blows the, blew the gates off my imagination and vision for what the Christian life could be. And lastly, it turned Jesus into more than a means to an end. It turned Jesus into the means and the end. 
when your resurrection theology is strong, when your understanding of what is happening in the resurrection and ascension just begins to take hold, you realize this is all about Jesus. My entire life is about giving glory to Jesus. Jesus isn't my punch ticket. He's not a throughway. He's not a gatekeeper that I just need to access and then say, thank you very much. I appreciate what you've done. Now I'll live my life. I'll come back to you as a consultant, get some tips and tricks once in a while, but I kind of carry on in my own steam. That's not the Christian life at all. The Christian life is about realizing that in the resurrection, God has installed this new king, and he intends to restore and redeem all things and put him under Jesus' authority. Because under Jesus' authority, people find freedom, they find healing, they find liberation from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. He's the only person who can wield absolute power in a way that leads to absolute flourishing for those under his power. And so I be, as I began to steep in this, I began to realize, wait, my life is for the glory of Jesus. He is the means. I need him every day in my life in ways that I didn't even realize before. But now the point of my life is Jesus. The point of the Christian life is in all these things to bring glory to him. Colossians 2 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. He's in charge now. I have been saved and welcomed into his kingdom. I'm not part of the Jesus team. I'm not part of his family. Why? To just live whatever life I want to live? No, if you're adopted into a new family, there's a new family code, there's new values that the family says, this is what it means to be part of this family. And this is the trajectory. This is our mission as a family. And Jesus, um, Jesus began to open up for me all these ways in which the, the resurrection and the ascension just blew the doors off a small, kind of stunted Christian expression. I began to realize as I followed Jesus and, his, and embraced his gospel, I was experiencing renewed hope in, in so many areas of my life, areas that I kind of had just left for dead. I was like, I just struggle with this here, and I guess that's the way it's going to be, or this has always been a, a, a wound, a place of wounding and pain, and I guess that's just the way it's going to be until heaven. And I began to realize, no, God is in the, the resurrection shows us that God is in the business of moving into places of death and bleakness and darkness and bringing life. That's what God loves to do. And it actually began to make me more buoyant in terms of my own way of moving through every day. I began to anticipate and think, I wonder, I wonder what God's going to kind of do next in my life. Because although dealing with my sin in, 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 in acknowledging Christ's lordship and asking for forgiveness, that is supremely important, but God wasn't done. God was wanting to lead me progressively into new life and new power and new hope. You know, and this morning, as I, as I talk about this, I realized, you know, I think to be a Christian is to live with a kind of continual anticipation for what's next. Because the resurrection says, God has something more for you. There are new things that God wants to renew in your life. There are places of brokenness that God wants to heal. There are places of just stuckness that God wants to build momentum out of. There are places that seem hopeless that God wants to touch and say, I don't, I don't want the power 
of sin to reign in that part of your life anymore. If your resurrection theology is small, you'll miss that. See, if our gospel is misshapen, and again, the point of what I'm saying is not to shrink the cross and enlarge the the crown. It's to grow all of them. It's to have a big, full-bodied gospel. Because if our gospel is misshapen, so will our expression of Christianity. You know, we shouldn't want to be Quasimodo Christians, hunchback misshapen. We want to be people who are living inside and learning to let the full gospel, the truth of the incarnation and the atonement and the resurrection come to bear in our lives. So what I'm going to do over this series, over these 50 days of Easter, is I'm going to talk about how the resurrection leads us into that new kind of life in a few spheres that I think are probably really important for us, all of us in this room, regardless of age, stage of life, to be wrestling through. Number one, uh, next week I'm going to talk about how the gospel and the resurrection specifically offers hope for a renewed character, renewed interiority, who we are in and ourselves. After that, I'll talk about how the gospel offers hope for renewed suffering, renewed sexuality will be the week after that, renewed marriage, and renewed parenting. So that's where we're going to go over the Easter season. Every week, hammering home the power and the glory of the resurrection and making a beeline to these areas where we all need help, we all need support, we all need encouragement, and to say there is help, there is encouragement. And, and not just that there's good advice, but that there's good news because of the resurrection. That God has empowered us to make changes in these areas. Um, the one book that changed my life more than any other is N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope. You can get it pretty inexpensively on Kindle. If you're looking for a mind goal for Easter or for the next 50 days of Easter, make it your ambition to read this book. It's, it's, very, it's, it's written to be accessible to every Christian. It's N.T. Wright's extended reflection on the ramifications of the resurrection for the mission of the church, what it means to be a Christian. It is delightfully mind-blowing. But you've been warned. I always warn people before they read this book, this this is going to mess with you in all the right ways. But it is a powerful, powerful um, tool that you can use to allow God to grow that crown dimension, if for you that's an area that, that, that seems weak and seems small. So the grand theme of the resurrection is that Jesus has been installed as King and Lord and Savior over all, and in him and through him, God is rescuing the world, and God longs to bring renewal and restoration to every sphere of our lives. When our gospel lives, when our gospel's misshapen, but our, our, our Christian lives can be misshapen too. But when our gospel is big and robust and when the resurrection has a prominent place within our thinking and understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, our lives take on a new depth and breadth. So let's go on the journey to renew our understanding of the resurrection and learn to live in light of its power and its glory. Let's pray. God, as we sing this final song, as we break bread together downstairs, over these next 50 days of Easter, Would this really be a season of renewal for all of us as a church? Even as we do things like renew our sanctuary and renew our roof, would those be emblematic of the renewal that you're doing within us individually and marriages and families and relationships between parents and children um, and our workspaces, God? In places of darkness, God, we, we need your hope. Lead us into this new life.
We don't want to just keep going on sinning. We don't want to keep letting the power of sin reign in our bodies. We want you to reign God as king. Teach us what it means to walk in that truth and in that power. In your name we ask these things. Amen.